You're listening to the Design Engineering Podcast, where we explore topics important to Canada's mechanical engineers, product designers, and machine builders. I'm Mike McLeod, editor of Design Engineering Magazine. And in this episode, I sit down with cybersecurity expert Michael Castro, founder and CEO of the Toronto-based firm RiskAware. Over his 25 years in the field, Michael has served as head of information security and risk management for Loblaws, provided security advisory services to Canadian Tire, and served as security leader for Suncor Energy. During our conversation, Michael gives an overview of the evolution and current state of enterprise cybersecurity and lays out some of the common strategies small to medium-sized companies can take to secure themselves. Michael, thank you for joining us for the Design Engineering Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mike. So, Mike, if you could start off by just uh, like introducing yourself a little bit about Risk, Risk Aware Group, the company that you uh, founded, and uh, just sort of give the audience a sense of who you are. Absolutely. So, thank you. So, uh, I've been in, personally been in cybersecurity for almost 25 years, a background in many corporate uh, worlds, uh, including oil and gas, financial, healthcare, retail. Uh, and really has summed up my whole uh, corporate life. Uh, a few years ago, I decided to leave the corporate world and founded RiskAware, which really is a boutique cybersecurity firm focusing on uh, small, medium businesses and really on the governance risk compliance side of cybersecurity and really what that means to organizations and how they really have to look at security holistically across the board and really look at it through lenses off and beyond just technology. How did you get into this field? I think I saw from your bio that you were once a paramedic. Yeah. How did that how did that transition from yeah, that, that world that's, to this? You world? know, people ask me that and really it wasn't a transition where I woke up one day saying, hey, I think I should go into cybersecurity. <laughs> but actually my my um I kind of moved from from being a paramedic. I was a paramedic for 10 years before those uh, cybersecurity years, uh, decided to, to key in on my um, schooling from, um, from university, more on the IT side. And I was working for an organization back in the, uh, I'll call it pre-Y2K days. Um, and um, they were handling financial information in a database that didn't have a lot of protection. Hmm. And when I asked them, <laughs> you know, why not? They had a puzzled look and then they looked to me and say, well, help us fix it. So it kind of stumbled into cybersecurity and I've never looked back. It's It's been a great journey. How do most people get into this field? Is it is it like sysadmins sys who like specialize? Is it other kinds of IT people who sort of wander into it? And a lot of that has changed, Mike, over, over the years. You know, when I started, it really, there wasn't really a, a direction or a stream to learn cybersecurity. It was a self-taught, you know, pick up the pieces, learn on the job, you know, kind of be that person to, to get into this new growing area of, um, you know, cybersecurity, which, you know, wasn't even called cybersecurity back then. Mm. As, we, mm. as we've looked over, you know, the time, you know, we, we've seen where, you know, there've been more opportunities for proper education in cybersecurity for individuals to go and get specifically trained in that cybersecurity. But for a lot of organizations and a lot of people, it has been, you know, IT folks that have wanted to do something different in IT. 
and have you know looked either through their own direction or through the the uh, request or needs of their of their employers or their companies to to tackle that and take on that that cybersecurity piece. Gotcha. And and risk aware. I know that there are blue teams and red teams and different kinds of industry terms, right? And stuff. Do you guys handle both sides? Is it more? Is this more a defensive kind of thing that you guys handle? Yeah, I mean, we're we're very much in the in the the world of trying to help organizations proactively, right? And really get them into a place where they're starting to feel more comfortable or more confident with what they're doing. You know, there's so much testing that can be done within organizations. And, you know, when we look at, you know, bringing up specifically, you know, things like red team, blue team is really about that offensive attack and the ability of organizations. So the offensive being the red team going in and attacking or or trying to attack as as the, the good white hacker would be. Uh, versus the blue team, which is really that team on the ground, what what that organization has and how they would respond to that attack. And really, it's about learning ultimately on, you know, could we handle one of these types of attacks? If it were real, would we have the capabilities? Would we have the staff, the resources, the knowledge to be able to do that? And for a lot of companies that, that you know, that's a bit of a challenge sometimes. So my sense of things over the last, say, over the pandemic, really, it seems, and I don't know if those are correlated, but there seems to have been like an escalation in the number of attacks that are happening on a weekly basis. I think some other security firm had like a report last year said that cybersecurity attacks per week were going up by 60%, something like that. And, and between 2019, 2020, I've seen other reports previous to that, maybe that this seems to be just something that's sort of ramping up, sort of hockey sticking, if you if you will, uh, in the last couple of years. I imagine that brings with it a crunch to find organizations like yours or to or in-house people to address these kinds of problems. Yes, you know when I when I started in security, it was very different than it is it is today. And mm. you know, I I kind of miss those simpler times. I look at mm. them as simpler. They weren't simpler at the back then, but you know, compared to what we're seeing today and what's happening to organizations today, you know, it really was a, a different world. But you know, year over year, the the number of threats, the path to um, you know threat actors and their impacts onto organizations, companies of all types has continued to grow. And as you said it, you know, there are a lot of statistics out there, but I think it's one of those exponential growth pieces that we're seeing. And, you know, we saw a huge burst up in 2020 with COVID and a lot of changes that really almost amplified and accelerated that that growth now where we're seeing, you know, the numbers of attacks, the sophistication of attacks today mm. being nothing like we, we've ever seen. And that has put a lot of strain on, on companies because obviously with, with larger volumes, and sometimes it's not larger volumes, but it's, it's better quality of attacks, you know, that puts organizations in a challenging spot to be able to continue to be able to protect themselves, uh, to not be that statistic, but ultimately not be that victim uh, because we're seeing obviously successful attacks, successful ransomware, exploits, uh, extortion, et cetera, continue. Um, and it, it's only getting worse. There really isn't any horizon where, you know, we can say, 
oh, you know, the worst is behind us. Because honestly, I think every year will just continue to be one of those pieces. And I, you know, I often say, you know, there really is no, it's it's a IT project that never ends. Yeah. I mean, when you say the sophistication of the attacks, where did most of them originate from? Are they internal? Or are they what they used to call script kitties who just gotten more clever or, you know, the tools that at their disposal are more clever. Is this more organized in which it's become almost like an organized crime kind of a thing? Is it just sort of nihilistic <laughs> jerks who just want to screw with things? What, yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I, I kind of put them in, into three buckets. We have, you know, that first group where you're talking about those script kitties eco-terrorists, you know, the ones that just want to be disruptive, make a point, bragging rights, you know, something to just be be that nuisance um, to a specific or indiscriminate kind of company. Uh, the biggest bucket, the, the second group out of the three, is really the ones that are out to monetize, out to make money. And we're talking about billions of dollars every year in proceeds that are coming from this and of mm. course having said that you know the logical place and what is is the reality is it's organized crime is behind this and you know there's been a shift in organized crime on you know those traditional ways that they they were were generating money to to these new methods uh, a lot of them being overseas eastern europe uh, asia um, where, you know, they can, they can use the guise of the internet to be able to work from anywhere uh, mm. and send attacks. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of money. So organized crime being that big piece that's driving a lot of that. And then the last piece, which we're seeing, you know, more growth on, and, you know, the war in Ukraine is kind of showing us that, is nation states are, are starting to get more involved with cyber attacks, you know, attacks on other nations. And or using it for you know theft of, of intellectual property, or or secrets, uh, whether from government or from corporations, to really you know benefit you know those nations as well uh, with their capabilities. Is it is it people who have I mean who are perceived to have deep pockets? I mean I'm thinking about the the kinds of incidents that come to mind. I think last year, no, it was two years ago. There was that, no, that was last year when there, there was that whole pipeline that got messed up in Virginia. Uh, I don't know if that was like a ransomware thing or if that was just somebody being. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, colonial oh, was pipelines, colonial, and, uh, which was right. last year and really was driven by ransomware, which had, of course, these horrible effects because the ransomware, which, you know, uh, impacted the organization at a corporate level, ended up hurting them at a at a uh, at a control system level, which mm. you know, impacted the pipeline, the controls of the pipeline, and ultimately then the flow of the uh, the gasoline and the the product, you know, which which was far more disruptive than had it would have just been a, a ransomware and encryption of a database or some you know not that there's a simplistic way to look at cyber, but you know the typical way that we see you know that ransomware kind of play out for many organizations. So you know it 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 it's one of those where you know the the disruption and the end result um, really grew beyond maybe even the intent of the threat actors were at that at that point. So you know it it's 
one thing that you know you one realizes that it it doesn't take a lot of money to to run a successful you know cyber campaign you know especially with with mm. you know threats and ransomware being able to be pushed through phishing emails uh the, the simplicity of of sending out emails to organizations in large quantities you know because all it takes is one person to really you know click on that and you know we say that email really is that number one threat vector that is okay. the way you know threat actors are getting into organizations and you know looking at you know that that personal that people nature of of clicking on things that you know commonly happens uh that could start something quite disruptive i was going to ask you that i guess i always thought that there was like somebody didn't somebody in it didn't check the right box or didn't configure the software just so or there was an unknown zero day kind of vulnerability that eventually comes out but wasn't patched you know what i mean things that only somebody who was like really knew what you know what i mean really knew what they were looking at and stuff but in reality it can be just and i know we've had this happen in my work and stuff somebody sends an email it looks legit maybe they've even got like logos embedded in the thing so you think it's real and you just sort of mindlessly click on an attachment and there you go you don't even know it's happened you think oh it's just something weird but they're in sort of silently and then i guess people can escalate that from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and and get their way in yeah, don't don't get me wrong. I mean, those still exist, right? We 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 look at exploits like the log4j uh, exploit, and you know other ways where that sophistication, that knowledge of people to be able to take um, vulnerabilities in software or coding and exploit it, uh, and that's still there, you know. And you know the the attack through the front door still exists. That attack on our perimeter, on our firewalls, to try to get to systems. But, you know, the, the threat actors realizing, well, that sometimes is really hard. Big companies are getting really good at building that, you know, that Bastille uh, wall to protect themselves. But then you have an email system that just has rules and firewalls that lets emails land into people's inboxes um, and, you know, be able to launch, you know, and it can be malware as well that's launched through that vector as well but suddenly are inside a network uh, and being able then to attack from within um, versus, you know, attack from the outside, almost like a Trojan, you know, where you're getting in and, you know, you, you have that attack because um, you've gotten through that front door. Right. I think I'd seen on your website, something along the lines of uh, some large percentage of attacks or successful attacks are, are facilitated or, or, it's a human sort of level and not a technological level of, of vulnerability. Yeah, they're, they're really, we look at kind of three sides to, to security. There's the technology side and, you know, where we have, you know, we, we have vulnerabilities that we have to worry about. But we also have controls that are all based on technology, right? Whether it be hardware or software. Um, we have process in, in place where we try to, to protect ourselves as organizations with policies and, and procedures and processes. And then we have the human element, the people side of it, uh, which is the weak link in, in the whole you know, chain. And we, we often see that that is the one that is exploited the most because it's the easiest to exploit. Now we rely on organizations rely on training and education and you know, helping employees and staff and the like you know, learn about the do's and don'ts and their responsibilities. 
Um, but trying to trick somebody into believing they're logging into a, you know, a, a bank website that really isn't a bank uh, is far easier than trying to craft an exploit and hoping that it, it's able to get through an intrusion prevention system and anti-malware systems and, and you know, the, the systems, the techno te technical controls that an organization might have um, in the hopes that that exploit hasn't been patched or hasn't isn't being filtered or isn't being monitored. So you know we're seeing we're seeing that across the board. Of course, big organizations, you know, have some deeper pockets that allow them to to have some more in place. We look at smaller companies that struggle a bit more that might not have that sophistication uh, to handle the exploit side of it. But of course, have the same same problem with with the users that that again might still be. Uh, tricked or, or uh, deceived into doing something on their end. And I would, I would imagine it's a mistake to think that, well, if you're a company, a small to medium-sized company, well, they'll go after, like, I think they, I think Bombardier had a problem last year, February of last year, where they just, they stole like maybe employee data and some customer, customer and vendor kind of stuff to think, well, it's really just, they're going to go after the big big boys and no no one knows who we are why would they target us kind of thing is that's a mistake isn't it to think that that's protection yeah it sure is again you know there, there's always been the perception especially you know i i speak to a lot of small medium businesses and, and a lot of them believe that they're not at risk a lot of them believe they're too small they're under you know under the radar, you know, the vertical that they're in, you know, what they do that, you know, threat actors wouldn't care about them. But, you know, that that was a mindset 10 years ago mm. where, you know, the attackers would go after the big companies because the big companies had the big rewards. They had lots of data. They had possibility of, you know, large rewards in, in, um, in getting in and being able to take something. But the threat actors have gotten a lot smarter and they're also realizing, I almost call it the, 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 the Walmart model, where mm. rather than, you know, attacking the few and, and making a lot of winnings off the few, they attack the many and make, you know, pro smaller proceeds from each. But just the sheer quantity, you know, makes it makes it profitable for them. So they're going yeah. after the smaller their groups, anyone with an IP address literally now right. become a victim. And so the smaller companies, these ones that have, you know, said I'm too small or I'm in, that's, you know, the business that I'm in isn't interested. Everybody has something that is, has value to, to a threat actor of some sort, whether it be data, uh, PII, PHI, uh, proprietary information, intellectual property, everybody has something that somebody is willing to steal and use or steal and extort or or just you know do something disruptive that can cause even the smallest company and unfortunately the smaller companies are the ones that you know if they are attacked and if they have a an incident they're they are less likely to be able to survive you know hmm. weather the storm so to say than, than some of the bigger ones and it's so easy to just automate, just carpet bomb a bunch of anonymous, you don't care who they are and stuff. You just have a, I mean, if you're the attacker and stuff, you would just have a list of names, the computer would spit out a bunch of things. And you think maybe if I get one or 2% to bite out of the hundreds, thousands of uh, attempts that I've just blasted out. Do you have a sense of what the financial ramifications for companies 
are, uh, I mean, I, you see different numbers thrown around and you mentioned how much difficult, it, how much more difficult it is for small to medium sized companies to weather these storms. What is, what is the kind of financial impact that these kinds of attacks have? You know, it, it, it's a number that's sometimes hard to nail down. I mean, they're saying the typical, you know, ransomware attack now is costing organizations, you know, getting close to $100,000 in terms Jesus. of significance, right? Yeah. And of course, that number is ballooned by large organizations that kind of brings up that average. Yeah. But of course, a lot of the challenges, we don't have great statistics because a lot of companies never report. A lot I of see. companies, especially the smaller ones, will, you know, something will happen, they'll deal with it. They're not reporting necessarily law enforcement um, or to, they may not have cyber insurance and are reporting information to, to their insurance companies. Um, so they deal with things internally. Um, and, you know, we don't have those statistics then to draw from. So obviously then the numbers we have are based on those larger companies, whether because they are publicly traded or, or the like where they, they're kind of being their hand has to be to, to do some more of that reporting. Uh, yeah. So I wish we had greater stats because, you know, I'd like to be able to, to share and, and learn on, you know, how that really impact can be. I can tell you that Statistics Canada, though, a couple of years ago here in, in Canada, is reporting that literally two thirds of, of small to medium businesses will have some impact um, wow. in the next five years from a security incident, whether it be small or large. And almost uh, 60% of them wouldn't be able to survive and have to be shut down uh, or go out of business because of that. And we actually see some reality of those where companies have just closed the doors, you know, rather than try to, you know, deal with, with the impact of trying to recover from something like a, a wow. ransomware or some significant uh, security incident that has uh, been thrust upon them. So you mentioned that um, anonymity isn't isn't a great uh, isn't that wasn't the old phrase uh, security by obscurity yes obscurity right uh, are there other misconceptions that you run into that common misconceptions that you run into like that yeah I, I think a lot of companies you know if if of course we have that first group that it, it, it won't happen to us but then a lot of other companies have that belief that they're already doing things so they believe mm -hmm. they have a pulse of what's going on they understand it and they believe that you know what they're doing is is adequate so you know they have they have antivirus running on their computer they have you know, subscribe to some service that is protecting their email, or they they rely on, you know, their third party outsource provider who is telling them that they, they, they are taking care of them and, and have their back day to day when it comes to security. The reality is, though, is a lot of companies don't really understand, you know, the, the significance of security and don't understand that security of, of 20 uh, 2018 is very different than security in 2022. Mm. And what you may have been doing four years ago or five years ago, and you know the threat angles that have come have changed over the year. And every year we see new, new threats and new models and new exploits um, that uh, are highlighted every year. Ransomware is still continuing to be there and has been number one for a long time, but we're starting to see, for instance, you know, more uh, changes in, in business email compromise and you know, CEO fraud, uh, wire transfer fraud growing mm. versus 
you know, encryption of, of, of files and extorting money that way. So that's one example of how it's changed. So companies have that um, where they, they believe that they're, they've covered the bases uh, when really they haven't because they haven't had someone who actually uh, understands security come in, help them understand that, help them understand their true risk uh, and, and help them determine if what they're doing is adequate, if what they're doing is the right way to spend. Because especially with small companies, right? They, they may not have a multi-million dollar, I suspect they don't have a multi-million dollar budget just for cybersecurity. Right. You know, they, they have some money, you know, they, they need to understand how best, you know, to, to spend the money that they have or the capabilities that they have uh, to protect themselves um, versus, you know, believing that, you know, because they they heard it somewhere or have spoken to somebody, you know, kind of, uh, you know, person of a person of a person that they're, they've covered the bases when, you know, we often see that, that in reality, they, they haven't quite done the right parts and they've left themselves still vulnerable. For companies to protect themselves, it's got to be like an ongoing kind of routine or, or discipline. It is. And, you know, for, for smaller companies, you know, we, we have IT people, for instance, that wear many hats, you know, they're, they're handling email problems and server problems and laptops and patching. And then I have to take on security uh, and, you know, best efforts kind of approach. But we even see large companies that may even have dedicated people working in cybersecurity. Mm. And if, if even with those organizations, if, if those individuals aren't keeping up with the pace of what's new, if they're not continuing to learn to, to evolve their craft, um, then they can sometimes fall behind too. And we're, and we're seeing a lot of burnout now as well. You mm. know, there's, there's a lot of of uh, we're, ha- we're seeing skills gaps and, and people gaps within cybersecurity, um, which is you know forcing those that are already on the ground working in that space to have burnout and you know and being overtasked with responsibility because as I said cybersecurity isn't letting up. There's there's no relief on the gas pedal, yeah. uh, and you know there are no holidays in cybersecurity or days off. It it's a constant constant threat, whether it be, you know, directly impactful or always that risk hovering there that it could happen. And so many companies, you know, will will close shop on a on a Friday night and Monday morning, they're dealing with something that has happened that, you know, they really had hoped wouldn't be, but it's their turn and something is now happening in their house. I get the sense that this is IT, you know, the cybersecurity is a very hot career field i mean in the it sphere as part of the story or i was looking into it and stuff there didn't seem to be a lot of formal education in this you're either self-taught or there were certifications i'm trying to the cisco had one stuff the a plus people had one um um i bet there are a bunch of them now and stuff is that still the way that people sort of substantiate their knowledge in this we we have right now a severe shortage of of cybersecurity people across. We're we're talking um, the number one IT um, category of open positions, and worldwide they're already looking at you know close to uh, three million um, jobs that they can't fill wow. specifically with cybersecurity, which, you know, 20, you know, 10 years ago, we were looking at 1 million, which I thought was horrendous back then. Uh, but now that number is, is skyrocketed and, and every year it seems to get worse and worse. 
And, and it just seems to be, it's just a magnitude, right? Every organization now, you know, needs, realizes that they, they should be doing something in that cyberspace, but there's not enough um, capability there. So why is that? Well, you know, there, there are a bunch of reasons, you know, traditionally, and I use that word a lot, <laughs> being a traditional kind of guy, you know, traditionally there weren't formal programs to get into. As I mentioned, I had to learn on the job. I had to go seek out my own learning, you know, learn through through niche areas. Um, you know, I got certified with a, a security body, you know, um, CISSP, which is one of those certifications. I was, I think, in the 19,000 globally back then, uh, in terms of number of people who, who held a, a certification. Um, but we're seeing now, you know, so so that historical value was, you know, even 10 years ago, someone said, I want to go into security. Um, they had to rely on getting a job and their employer, you know, funding something for them to go to. Sure. Or they had to go out on themselves, find something that there weren't a lot of and go go and, you know, learn that craft and and hopefully pick the right flavor of craft because again like so many other it areas right there's so many flavors even within in within cybersecurity as well we're seeing though the good news is we're seeing more come about we're seeing most more post-secondary more boot camps more offerings of of education formalized education where um you know People can come out of, out of school and specifically go into programs for learning cybersecurity, either mm -hmm. before getting a job or, you know, while on the job um, to try to fill that gap, to try to help with those numbers um, that we're seeing with that shortage. Because you might imagine with, with, so, many, with so many openings, it's, it's a great field to get into, you know, but, you know, part of that challenge has been to find a way to get into it. And, and get that learning. So it's coming along. It just isn't at the at the full throttle that I think we we are missing right now, um, because it's it's almost like we're we're getting there, but we should have been at this phase ten years ago or, mm. or seven years ago, uh, and and we're playing catch up now with with trying to get get that learning capability going uh, to help individuals and companies, you know, have that, that capability that they need to be able to help themselves. Right. What's your assessment of the different routes that somebody could get into this? Do you feel as it's better to just generalize coming out of university and then specialize later? You know, back in the 90s, it was all about the Microsoft certification, right? And stuff. And then at some point it became the Linux certification. And then it was this, because people had to prove that they could actually do these things rather than just be sort of vaguely familiar with them. I mean, how do you guys assess somebody coming into risk aware? You know, the, the, the challenge has always been for companies, do you hire somebody who already has the skill or do you look to hire someone and then help them get that skill? Sure. And, you know, organizations traditionally have said, we need some security. We're going to post a job. We expect ABC and only those who are skilled should apply. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is people weren't applying because they didn't have those pieces or they had those pieces, but they already had another job. And, you know, that that person was already taken off the market or, or wasn't available. So companies sure. have have looked to say, you know, what are we going to do? We, we have openings even within our own company that we cannot fill. 
but we need someone that has expertise in application security or web security or corporate network security. Um, what are we going to do? So, you know, companies need that help. Um, they're often looking to, you know, third-party providers right now to help them augment or to hire a cybersecurity firm like ours to, you know, come in and provide that capability, um, you know, kind of in an interim or on a project base to help fill those voids. But we're seeing a trend now where, where companies are starting to look and having to look from within hmm. and, and realizing that, you know, cybersecurity is really an IT skill, right? You can't have a good cybersecurity person without some knowledge of IT or some knowledge of an organization. They're starting to look from within. Can we as a company look to our, our, our individuals or our IT folks and bring them up to speed, help them get educated, help them, you know, learn on the job and help us, you know, gain that expertise uh, versus, you know, having that laundry list out in advance. So companies are, are not necessarily having to lower the bar, but are learning to okay. adapt and, 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 you know, find that. We're also seeing, you know, a lot more new grads coming out um, and, you know, not requiring 10 years on the job or five years on the job, right? Uh, but hiring new grads and developing that capability okay. uh, as they grow within the company. And, and, and that, that is starting to prove to be successful. I see. It's a lot like with engineers, right? You know, and stuff, a lot of them, the, the catch 22 they get into is that everybody wants an engineer with five to 10 years experience. And you've got a bunch of engineering grads who aren't getting those because they just graduated, obviously, if they didn't have some kind of co-op education. But then you get a bunch of companies who are saying, well, we desperately need engineers. So it's, it's good to hear that that's softening in the cybersecurity where they're saying- Soften, Softening, but not fast enough, unfortunately. Oh, okay. So, okay. you know, where, you know, I talk about this 3 million vacancies. So the good news is it looks like it's starting to level off in the sense that you know, it's not getting worse, right? So the programs gotcha. that are coming, the initiatives, you know, we're seeing government subsidies and, and you know, money being put in to help people get trained. So the good news is it's starting to level off, but it's still large and it's still, you know, a lot. It's going to take to, to, to kind of have the curve come down is going to take a lot more. But, you know, having been in that corporate world, you know, even today in that, you know, world within our own company, the ability to attract and retain those, those those skilled workers is tough. And, you know, I learned long ago that if you have those, those individuals, especially, you know, that are already working within your organization that want to learn, that want to be, be in that cybersecurity space, you know, not to frown down on that anymore, but to take that as, as a good launch launching pad mm. uh, to try to get that capability going, because you may wait a long time I, I had some, you know, positions open many months, like close to eight months, struggling to fill jobs, you know, on our own um, team's needs um, that, that wasn't able to fill just because we couldn't find the talent. Um, or you'd, you'd, you'd go to, to, to interview somebody, and before you could even interview them, they had already been interviewed and selected a job else. somewhere else right. that quickly. Do you think it's inevitable that, I mean, given the amount of demand and the sort of lag behind of these programs, obviously it's going to take two to four years for a lot of these people to even hit the market, 
a lot of things seem to be going to as a service kind of models, even in the industrial space, we've got robotics as a, as a service or, you know, data analysis as a service, all these kinds of things are going in a rental kind of way. Is it inevitable that cybersecurity will sort of move in that direction? Or do you think organizations will continue to, to hire and, and develop within? Yeah, it's the general, you know, economics 101 of supply and demand. And sure. the demand is high, the supply is low. And some, some companies are, you know, having to go to that as a service model. And security as a service is growing. I mean, it's something that we build ourselves upon as well at, at, at RiskAware. It really is, you know, if a company can't attract that themselves, then they're going to have to go hire a firm that can provide that capability. So we're seeing a lot of growth of a lot of cybersecurity firms that, you know, are able to attract, you know, the like minds. Security people like working with other security people, for instance. Um, you know, some organizations struggle because a security person doesn't want to be the only security person in a company, right? You know, as we talked about burnout and, and the like. Uh, so security people sometimes gravitate, they work in one firm. And so we're seeing, you know, where some companies are able to attract those capabilities and companies then are looking as a service to say, okay, if I can't get that job filled, I'm going to hire this company and they're going to be able to provide that capability for us, uh, obviously with a, for a price, um, but it, it becomes that rental model versus that, you know, buy model. Of um, because as I said, you know the the difficulty is to attract, and you know attracting and and hiring someone is great. Retaining them is another problem, sure. and you know having someone then not leave six months later, twelve months later, because the market is so hot that they're getting you know a, another offer from another company that is going to pay more, offer more, uh, and you know very quickly then they move on uh, because that that. Um, ability to, to, you know, earn more or to do more, you know, is constantly there, as you can imagine, when when there's so many um, job openings out there and such a demand for the, for the skill. I I always imagine it like the hard, hard part would be figuring out when it's okay to say yes to something in that role. Like, can I bring my own phone in? No. Can we open this port? No. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, but of course, corporations can't operate like that. So you gotta, you gotta, assess risks constantly and and think did i just did i just let some actor in by allowing this thing to happen and yeah yeah so you know again i I fall back a lot on my on my uh on my history when i started you know security was i was i was the border right i people would say can i do that i'd say no they'd say okay and that would be (laughs) the end of it i i could say no all day long because that's how security worked no 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 i feel safe (laughs) Right. And um, that unfortunately had a had a repercussion because, you know, people in companies and business units and groups start to say, well, I need to do my job. So I'm just not going to come to you and ask for permission. I'm just going to mm. do whatever I want. Right. And I'm just going to bypass you. And that, that was a that was not a good time either, because security took a major hit from that. Okay. You know, as a, as a as a CISO, you know, myself. You know, where we've gotten with with security in organizations is, is, I wouldn't call it a compromise, but almost a better understanding that the business has needs, security has needs, there has to be that balance. And it, 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 you know, now the conversations, you know, in those spaces aren't on the can I do it? Or, you know, will you allow me to do it? It's more of what do you need to do? 
And then how can security try to build that, that protection as best they can, understanding there's, there's risk. You know, if, if we can't enforce 30 character passwords for everyone in the organization, which we never can, yeah. um, but we don't want four character passwords either. If we can find that balance of, of what is acceptable or build compensating controls or to understand risk and have that risk either uh, mitigated uh, or, or accepted, you know, we can get along a lot more because companies need to constantly evolve. And of course, with, with the way we've, we've developed in, in, you know, industry 4.0 and the explosion of capabilities and, and models around technology, there's no sitting around and debating things for six months anymore. It's the, we need to be agile. We need to be able to come to some conclusion and keep moving forward as an organization. So security kind of has to be along that that path um, to not compromise, but at the same time be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. Gotcha. So a cultural shift in that way. It really stuff, has been, yeah. And stuff and stuff. Yeah, instead of just locking everything down, saying, "Here's what we're going to do. You guys make it secure." If we might, if we might look at the industrial side of, of things as as opposed to say, I guess what you know, the corporate maybe I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, so in industrial manufacturing sort of sense, is are there major differences between the way security would be handled at like a Canadian tire as opposed to a Suncor, or I'm just pulling examples from your own history, but usually manufacturing machines, the shop floor has been somewhat air gapped, I guess is the, is the right word um, from, but now digital transformation, all the rest of it and stuff. We've got cloud computing, edge devices, integration within the automation stack, all kinds of things that had not happened previously and stuff. Do you find that there are unique challenges to those kinds of situations, or is it is the same philosophy hold no matter what systems are connected to each other? I, I mean, security is security, right? Okay. And you know, whether it be security at home, security on a you know a payroll computer, or security on a on a you know workstation on the on the floor, they all need security. But it's how that security comes and and how it is, how that protection model um, exists is what changes. And and you're right, Mike, you know, the, you know, we we, we would traditionally again air gap and isolate uh, systems in production or in um, process control or in in mm. you know that world where we wouldn't touch them you know corporate security would not come in here we were over here everyone else is over there we can't patch systems we rely on on sophisticated software we can't have downtime we can't reboot you know these mm. machines run constantly led to a lot of headbutting i can tell you a lot of battles i had hair back then um <laughs> when when we talked when i talked to those groups um on the on the production floors and trying to convince them where security is, but again, that that has evolved. We've seen where we had single vendors controlling systems and coming in and, and updating software now to systems everywhere being connected to the internet. Systems mm. relying on on connectivity um, from within IT and OT and crossing that line and not being gapped anymore, but putting in those those connections and out of necessity and out of, you know, the requirement and out of evolution, right? I mean, we're evolving in the way we do things. So that model has changed. It hasn't changed the 
sophistication, the complexity, and the need to to have systems that are are nurtured a little more or to are are very sophisticated and exclusive. But we still have to look to security. We can't just ignore them and say, "Well, that's okay. We'll run that Windows XP backend forever." because we can't do that anymore. We have right. to say, okay, we still need to upgrade. We still need to look to maintaining. We still have to put on patches that vendors or these software stacks are still providing. We have to be able to have these machines talk to the internet or talk to a backend uh, because that is a requirement now. So we have to build those protections. We have to find a way and not just look at it like it's in an isolated bubble because the reality is they're not anymore. I just keep thinking a lot of a lot of that equipment on the shop floor was probably developed at a time when the assumption was that it would only talk to other machines or would only talk within the existing machine. And as soon as you plug it in by whatever means to the wider thornier world, all of a sudden it's in a in an environment that was never designed for. I, I imagine there are all kinds of strategies that one can employ in order to firewall them or or keep them communicating but but not necessarily just another what's surface attack vector i i'm trying to throw in the the jargon but uh... (laughs) no you're right you're right there and and you know it's you're right a lot of them were standalone machines i have software it does this task it does nothing else i don't read my email on the machine i don't have access to the to the internet to browse you know, I just have that task. And a lot of them would have software that was purchased many, many years ago. It was doing the job. Why upgrade it? I mean, it, it does A, B, and C, and it's doing it just fine. But things have changed and connectivity has creeped in. And you're right. All of a sudden, these machines are connected to a database or some information on another system or it's sharing, uh, you know, exporter has to export its information somewhere and that requires connectivity of some sort maybe not necessarily to the internet but exposed to other systems and so you know we we've had to say okay how do we do that if we do have that windows 7 or xp machine how do we protect that because we may not be able to to um, update the software on the machine or the or the or the the software running the application necessarily, but we have to be able to do something, whether it be a firewall or segmenting the network or access control or you know some form of way to say we can still operate that, um, but we have to take steps, not just put our head in the sand and say no um because it's kind of the opposite it used to be me saying no all the time you know and and it really turned to the to to the to the operators to say no you can't do this um again it's that give and take where we we really have to work together to find those solutions and find ways to to protect us in this new world because we know technology is everywhere now we we are in a world where you know Five years from now, you won't even be able to buy a, a kitchen appliance that that it will not be mandatory connected to the internet for firmware upgrades and everything else. The, those standalone machines, even what we've always lived our lives on, uh, everything is going to be connected. I mean, I remember like late '90s, early 2000s, you know, and stuff. Computers were fairly. I mean, what well, we were running. What was it? Windows. It wasn't Windows, Windows 3. Windows 3. 1. Yeah. You know what I mean? 3.1. Technology. <laughs> right in that XP 3.1 sort of era. <laughs> right. And, you know, nobody really thought about that. But I, I wonder as, 
you say everything's going to be connected, right? We're going to be collecting and harvesting and analyzing data from not just refrigerators, but um, PLCs, anything on the shop floor, all this data. Does the fundamental protocols of the internet need to change in some way? I mean, we've gone from IP4 to IP6. I mean, I think we're still in that transition, but what is HTTP, right? HTTPS is standard now. It used to be sort of voluntary, but now it's standard. Are there other kinds of fundamental protocols of the internet that need to, to evolve or change radically in order to just hard bake some yeah. kind of security into? Like the internet's the internet. It's it's never yeah. going to go away. And it, it's as much as we love it, it, it's a curse at the same time, right? Especially sure. when sure. you know we're seeing attacks come come from from some foreign land and all they need is an IP address, you know, and they can literally attack my my home router and my home office just because I have an IP just like everybody every other connected device has. So, you know, we've seen the evolution, of course, on protocols and, and capabilities. We've constantly seen evolutions of encryption algorithms and hashes and, and the ability of, you know, using new uh, coding and, and machine language to try to do a better job. And again, we look what we were using five years ago, 10 years ago, and, you know, that wouldn't hold ground anymore just because it was it had so many holes in it. It was so easy to 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 get into it but you know we're, we we are trying to start building you know applications and security by design right we're we're seeing mm. where we're, we're we're promoting the concept of build things securely to begin with versus having to bolt on security after the fact and of course the microsoft's the apples linux you know they're all doing that now where they're, they're coming out with security as a mindset and we're seeing applications and SaaS pieces that are, are built with security in mind before they're even going to production. But then we have the other world, right? We have so many connected devices, like we're talking about tens of billions of connected devices around the world, exponentially growing year after year. Um, and we look at IoT at the simplest thing. We have sensors on everything. We, yeah. we are connecting our fridges, our cameras, our thermostats, our cars. Heck, we're, we're connecting our fish tanks you know, to the internet. <laughs> and, and manufacturers are, are, are building a fridge. They're not building a secure application, right? Yeah. They just want connectivity of something. So even in organizations where they're having all these sensors, we have a lot of IoT out there where security wasn't necessarily that that number one thought when they when they built a code. It was just about making it work, um, and you know sophistication that that design mechanism isn't there. That's where that vulnerability is for so many companies, right? And you know we're seeing that whether it be on the corporate side or the OT side, um, there there are just so many pieces that we can't protect everything. We need it. We we are in a world of relying so much on iot and and connectivity um but we, we we are running at a very fast pace to try to keep up with that or build some way to keep ourselves secure and, and you know that's that's what makes security exciting i love being in the cybersecurity space but it scares me every day at the same time i i imagine the boogeyman is even more scary to people who don't have your experience right and stuff so i mean you know what you know and you know what you don't know Right, so you have a clear picture of what the risks are. But to somebody who's running a company, running a manufacturing plant and stuff, the, all of that is just 
magic you know what i mean there's wizardry and just the the what you don't know is so much scarier than having to know i mean is there some sense that one can conceivably protect themselves or is it simply a matter of, well you are going to get sick in some way but we can inoculate you to a certain extent so that it's not catastrophic you know we say uh, and we've said for many years now in the circles it it's it will happen it's not if it happens it it will happen every organization will be impacted some hmm. way by by a threat and you hope that it's something small for some organizations it's very small and manageable for others it's catastrophic so you know we i, I want companies i want individuals to understand that that threat is real and then really it's about preparing yourself, organizations and, and individuals being proactive, looking at security in the, I need to do something now so that when it happens, we're gonna mm -hmm. be more resilient or we're gonna be able to weather the storm or the impact is gonna be less than if I did nothing at all. So, you know, shoring up the defenses, you know, improving security around email, training our staff, having a incident response plan, understanding, what we would do if we got ransomware, all those pieces prepare you like a fire drill on the right. inevitable day that you have a fire, right? Yeah. And what you do, you know, after years and years that you go down stairwell B and you go outside and you meet in the parking lot and you leave behind your bags and out you go, right? And then you get ice cream at the end, right? But yeah, uh, or somebody gets injured on the job. I mean, if you're in manufacturing, they always have those number of days since somebody got injured but there's procedures there are procedures you know it's going to happen eventually you don't want it to god forbid but you know what to do somebody gets hurt here's what we do first this then that then yes. this so it has to be that. the same for security right so you know not in the i'm throwing up my hands you know i'll deal with it when it happens sure wrong answer right because it'll be far more impactful it'll take far longer to recover it'll be far more expensive to deal mm. with something after the fact. If you can deal with it in advance, take those measures, be prepared, spend that money to kind of build that pro pro proactive protective model, then when it does happen, and it still will happen, I can tell you if, if a threat actor is determined to get in, they're going to get in. Um, mm. It happens to all organizations, big and small, but you'll be in a better position to deal with it. And that's what I think, you know, my, my, you know, I hope that takeaway is for, you know, for those listening is, you know, do something, find, find out what you need to do. If you need to bring in that expertise to help you say, this is where your weak spot is. This is what you need to improve. This is what you should be doing. Um, that's going to help you in the long run. Um, because, you know, there's, there's no way just to close the door and, and lock it at the end of the day even you know that world of physical security isn't what it used to be and just you know turn the lock in, in the key and, and go home so sure. you know we we have to kind of think that same mindset when we look at security logically um in in that uh you know we we have to do everything that we can uh to protect ourselves because that threat is always always out there gotcha is there anything else that i didn't know to ask or is there anything that you'd like to add I just want to say that, you know, organizations, you know, always think of security not as a, uh, as a, you know, a lack of, of, of ROI or return on investment. Mm. Organizations could spend a million dollars, they can spend a hundred dollars, you know, you can do security with zero dollars, um, but everybody can do something. Uh, everybody should do something. 
and you know, I want that to kind of be that. You know, I I don't I don't want you know everyone to think that security in the, in the boogeyman's out there, and you know, we're all doomed. We're not yeah. all doomed. You know, we 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 can make ourselves you know better through you know protecting ourselves or building. You know, if we're in that space of building things that are you know inherently more secure, whether it be an application or some software. You know, we we have it in us as as organizations, as society, you know, to take to take control of this uh, and not let, you know, the, the the threat of a cyber attack or an incident kind of weigh down on us. Um, but I want everyone, you know, it's it's that Boy Scout in me, you know, it, that always be prepared, right? We all have to be prepared uh, and know that, you know, any one of us uh, could have, you know, that, that lasting effect. Um, but we all have a means to do something about it. Well, thank you again, Michael. I appreciate you joining us. My today. pleasure. It, it's been great, Mike. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the Design Engineering Podcast's other episodes at www.design-engineering.com slash podcasts, or subscribe to the podcast via the major streaming services, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.